Uh, so I don't know about you guys, I am learning a lot about Jesus and what it means to be his follower as we are taking this remarkably slow walk through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, typically when I've done book studies, they've gone like five weeks or so. We're about five or six weeks into this one and we're in chapter five today. So, I mean, I'm planning my retirement around this series. Um, last week we left off in Matthew 5:11. so let's read that. It says, God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you're my followers. This is the weird part, verse 12. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. And so last week we talked about what, how, why should we be happy and glad when we're persecuting. But as I reread that this week, like something else really stuck out to me. Jesus is putting us in the same category with the Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Jared. Do you ever think of yourself like that? Jesus is putting us in the same category as Elijah and Elisha and Ezekiel, and that is an amazing compliment, I think, because these Old Testament prophets, they spoke for God and they did amazing miracles and they were awesome preaching and calling people out and saying, thus saith the Lord, they were awesome but they were also like super weird. Um, they did not care what people thought. They did whatever it took, whatever God told them to do to illustrate his truth to the people of Israel. That's what they did. And you may think that my sermon illustrations have been weird, right? So we passed out jelly donuts. Isn't that weird? Oh, we had bacon pops a while back. How strange. Oh, we had people on stage and caught their hair on fire. These are all sermon illustrations, right? You may have thought those were weird, but I'm telling you, these guys, Ezekiel, how about Jeremiah? Jeremiah wanted to illustrate how dirty Israel had become, so he bought new underwear and refused to wash it. Look it up. It's in there. Ezekiel did a sermon illustration where he chopped off his hair and his beard with a sword. He also cooked bread over burning poop. Check that one out. Uh, Isaiah walked around naked for three years. So be thankful <laughs> for what you have. Um, Elijah, here's one of my favorites. So Elijah, everybody knows Elijah, right? He had this amazing showdown with the prophets of Baal, this other god, right? And 450 prophets of Baal, like on one side, and here is Elijah standing by himself. And so he's like, they're like a bet. They're gonna have a challenge, right? And so he says, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna see whose God is real. We're gonna build this altar. We're gonna put wood on it. We're gonna chop up a bull or something and throw it on there. And then you pray and you talk to Baal. And you tell him to catch it on fire. And we'll see if he does. We'll see if he's real. And then I'll pray to Yahweh and ask him to send fire. And we'll just see what happens. And so you guys go ahead and go first. So sure enough, they build this altar. They chop up the wood. They got a bull up there. And all these 450 prophets start like dancing and they're singing and praying. They're cutting themselves. They're doing all this craziness to try to get their God, Baal, to start this thing on fire. And Elijah's like standing over in the corner, like mocking them. He's like, you know what? Pray louder. Pray louder. Maybe your God can't hear you. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's in the bathroom. Check it out. That's what it says. 
And so nothing happens, obviously, right? And so he mocks them some more. And then he goes, now let me show you how Yahweh rolls. So he says, before we do it, though, let's soak all the wood down with hundreds of barrels of water so that it can't possibly catch on fire. And then he prays, and guess what happens? Right, just flames everywhere and all that stuff. And so then, just to make sure they understood who won, he killed them all with a sword. (laughs) He killed 450 prophets of Baal that day. So that's a story. And then uh, Elisha, Elisha, here's the, of all the prophets, right? So here's Elisha. He's going town to town, and he's telling people about Yahweh, and he's getting ready to go to this one town, and like a gang comes up to him on motorcycles, and they got the leather jackets or whatever. And it's 42. It's 42 young men come up to him, and they're like, we don't want you in our town. We don't want your God in our town, so get out of here. And then they went too far. They said, get out of here, baldy. (laughs) Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. That was like, that's it, man. And so he prayed, and two bears came out of the woods and mauled that whole gang of 42 young men. And so there's a lesson in that for all of us, right? (laughs) Don't mess with the man of God. So these prophets are... What? They're awesome, right? They're, they're amazing. They're weird. They're super violent. And, and, and Jesus says, we're like the prophets, right? And is it because we kill the prophets of false gods with the sword? Is that how we're like them? Is it because we don't wash our underwear? Is it because we call bears out of the woods to maul people or because we dress weird or walk around naked or yell at people? No, we're like them in that we're persecuted, and we're like them in our calling. We're like the prophets in our calling because they were called to call Israel back to the kingdom of God. And we're called, as Jesus followers, to call people in our world back to the kingdom of God. But we're not called to do it naked, right, or with fire or yelling or bears or in dirty underwear. Jesus, Jesus tells us how. Jesus tells us how to do it. It's Matthew 5, 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But what good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? No, it's just gonna be trampled underfoot as worthless. Verse 14, you're the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that can't be hidden. Nobody lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house, and in the same way, let your good deeds, let your behavior shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. So we don't call people to God's kingdom by our nakedness or our swords or our yelling. We do it by being salt and light. And as important as this is, it's interesting to me that Jesus didn't really describe like, what that means. To, what, is it, like, what does it mean to be, we have this expression, right? The salt of the earth. What does it mean to be like salt in our world? And so Jesus doesn't really tell us. And I'm, I, I'm just trying to think, like, what did he mean? And so, especially for them, they didn't have refrigeration or whatever, right? So one thing we know, salt preserves what is good, right? Salt keeps things from spoiling. And so we should probably be thinking about, like, what does that look like in our world? We're salt in our world. Like, what does it mean for us to keep things from spoiling? It probably means, like, teaching our kids, right? It probably means getting involved, 
It probably means standing for justice. We're supposed to be salt. We're supposed to keep things from spoiling in our world. And salt creates thirst, like pretzels, right? People, if you know, you eat a handful of pretzels, eat a bag of pretzels, and you have this craving, right, for a beverage. See, I almost said something I shouldn't say then. You have a, you have a craving for a beverage, and, 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 and when people like, taste and see Jesus in us and his love working through us, it should make them thirsty. Right? It should make them say, give me some of that. I want Jesus. So salt preserves what's good. Um, it creates thirst. And I think salt, I mean, salt adds flavor. Right? Salt adds like zest. And I have to say I am tired of this portrayal of Christians as being dull, lifeless, boring prudes who don't ever laugh and don't ever have fun and we, we should be the opposite of that, right? We, we have confidence in our eternal future, right? How many of you know where you're gonna spend forever? Do you see how that's like one less thing to worry about? I mean, we, should, we, we shouldn't be worried, right? We, we serve a God who loves us completely and who's full of grace and mercy, so we don't have to deal with shame like everybody else did. This, we should be, I mean, we got, a lot to, we got a lot to be happy about. We got a lot to rejoice about and be excited about. The rules in the Bible are to, to promote human flourishing. So those of us that follow those rules, we're supposed to flourish, right? And if we're flourishing, we should, we should be happy. We're living the life that humans were created to live. We should, we should be we should be happy. We should be fun people to be around. We should be, we should be fun people to be around. Christians should be fun people to be around. And I hear, if I'm, I'm gonna choke the next Christian that I see <laughs> that says, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Right? Just like, tell your face, right? You're, be happy. Be, be. Be happy. We, our joy should be contagious to people. This thing that we're living without shame should be drawing people. This thing that we're not afraid of forever should be making people want to hang out with us. We, parties should be better when Christians are there. Yes. <laughs> that got them going. That parties should be better. People's lives should be better because they're around us, not more eternally meaningful. That too, but their lives should be funner. Right, this idea that following Jesus is dull and boring, that is, let me tell you something, that is literally a lie from hell that is being propagated intentionally to lure people away from the joy and the beauty and the abundance and the fun of Christian life. Somebody say amen to that. Okay, so, um, and you know, here's a, don't listen to this part, okay, so, People will say, you know, following Jesus is just not sexy, you know? And it's like, I just have to speak to that just super briefly, okay? So I read two studies this week. Um, One was by the Wheatley Institution and one was by a guy named Steve Cranny's Reviews of Religious Research. And they found that devout Christian married couples have the most frequent and satisfying sex of any demographic they tested. So how's that for sexy, right? (laughs) So suck on that, heathens, right? So, that might have been too salty. 
Because uh, <laughs> we're getting ready, I'm bracing you. Next week we're gonna talk about sex, so be ready. Um, so the point, like, what was the point again? <laughs> what were we talking about? Got all worked up. Uh, we call people to God by being salt, by preserving what's good, and by making people thirsty for Jesus, and by adding flavor to people's lives, and by being light, right? Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, and we're his body, so we should be reflecting his light to the world around us. I'm gonna tell you, it shouldn't be that hard, because light shows up best in the darkness, and as much as the world around us trying to convince us that we're enlightened, man, it is, it is dark out there. And we shouldn't blend into that. We shouldn't be indistinguishable from the world around us. Our light, we should, we should show up. He said, like a city on a hill that can't be hidden. So as salt and light, we do what the prophets did. We, we call people back to God and his kingdom. It's basically the same calling as the Old Testament prophets had. It's just the methods have changed a little bit in the Jesus movement. But that doesn't discredit the Old Testament prophets and it doesn't take away from the Old Covenant or the Old Law. In fact, look what Jesus says about that. I, I think Jesus must have known. He's like unpacking this new stuff and people might, maybe were thinking, oh, so the prophets are no good anymore, the old stuff's no good anymore. Look what he says, this is Matthew 5, 17. He says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I didn't come to abolish the Law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. And if you read this whole sermon, which we're going to in the next few weeks, in chapter seven, it says the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught with such authority. That's what amazed them. It was really different teaching, but they were amazed that he taught with such authority. It's like they were saying, who is this guy? Because he's, he's acting like he's, in the, he's the authority on how to know God and how to have relationship with God because these people forever had had one source of authority on how to please God and how to honor God with your life and how to be in relationship with God. What was their source of authority about that stuff? It's the scripture, right? It's what Jesus calls the law and the prophets. And so the law is, they said, they said their word, the Torah, right? Or we say the Pentateuch, the five books, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and those books are all about keeping these very specific rules about food and festivals and holidays. I mean, like how to cut your hair, everything, all about the justice. They had a really interesting justice. You know, an eye for an eye, you heard that one, a tooth for a tooth, and all the weird, like if your son kills my ox, then you know I get to kill your ox's son or whatever. There's all of these rules, and the old covenant is we follow the rules, right? We follow the rules, and when we fail, we do these animal sacrifices, and that's it, man. That's how Israel tried to be right with God, and that been doing that since the Ten Commandments. They've been doing that for hundreds of years, and they, they believed in the Torah. They, they, they loved the law. They trusted the authority of the law. So they had the law, and then they had, Jesus said, and the prophets, and that's the writings of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Joel and Obadiah and all those guys, and God spoke to his people through these prophets about how to please him and how to honor him and how to have a relationship with him and about his plans for the future. So Israel wanted a relationship with God and before Jesus came, the only authority they ever trusted about how to do that was the law 
and the prophets. And so that's why Jesus caused such a stir. That's why people were amazed because he's talking like he had authority about how to be right with God. And he was saying really weird stuff that they had never heard before. Like, first of all, we talked about last week, he was saying that, 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 that broken, sick, marginalized, not necessarily religious people are the ones that the kingdom is coming for. And that, you know, that didn't sit well with them. And then for like two chapters, he's been preaching all this upside down, crazy kingdom stuff about now the first or last, and leaders are supposed to be servants, and we're supposed to forgive people that hurt us and love our enemies and not judge each other. We're supposed to give sacrificially and not expect credit. And now all of a sudden, it's not enough not to kill people or have, you know, commit adultery. Now we have to have pure motives. And so this is like, this is crazy talk to them. This is crazy talk to them because the one authority to them about how to be right with God has always been Scripture, right? The law and the prophets. And now this guy Jesus is acting like he's the authority all of a sudden on how to be right with God. And some of the really religious people are not digging it, right? And spoiler alert, later they're going to kill him for it. But Jesus knows that they love and respect the law and the prophets, and he does too. So he says, look, I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come to undermine the prophets. I've, I've come to fulfill them. So what is that? We've read that verse a million times, right? What does that mean, that he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets? So let's, let's start with the prophets, okay? So we, this is the easy one. We've talked about these, these hyperlinks that Matthew seems to be kind of in love with, where he keeps saying, and then Jesus did this, and it's like, click, link, and that fulfilled what Isaiah said the Messiah was going to do. And then Jesus said this thing, click, link, and that tells us back here to Jeremiah said this is something that the Messiah is going to say. And so over and over and over, Matthew's pointing out all these times that Jesus did something or said something, and then he'll say, and this fulfilled what the prophet said that Messiah was going to do. And so Jesus fulfilled the prophecies, and that's what he means when he says he's come to fulfill the prophets, but what does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? What does it mean that Jesus fulfilled the law? And I, it, partly, and I've heard people say, that, well, because he kept the law. And that's, that's true. I mean, Jesus was the first person ever to really keep the, all the law. And, and I think that's part of it, but I think that maybe there's something else here. So the Old Testament law is actually 613 laws, and it starts with, you know, the big 10, right? And like, here's what it is. It's the law, all of these rules. This is like the fine print in the agreement. This is like the fine print in this, um, con this uh, like a, a covenant is the word, a contract that God had with his people, Israel. So this story is in Exodus 19, and after 400 years of slavery, God just miraculously like saves his people from the Egyptian army and he walks them out of this Egyptian slavery towards a promised land and he's providing them food and water and he's protecting them and leading them to the promised land and they make a stop at Mount Sinai for about a year and while they're there, God made a deal with them. God made a, an agreement, a, God made a contract, a covenant and he sent, he sent Moses to negotiate the deal. Right? Moses was like his lawyer, right? He's going to negotiate this thing. And so God says to Moses, this is Exodus 19, like 3, 4. 
And, and he says, look, you go tell, you go tell the people of Israel, um, look, you guys know me, and you saw how I saved you from slavery, and you saw how I crushed your enemies, and I carried you out of there on eagles' wings. 19.5, Exodus 19.5, now God says, so here's my offer. Here's my offer to the people of Israel. If you will obey me, and if you'll keep my covenant, you keep these laws, then here's what I'll do. You will be my very own special treasure. You will be selected out of all the people in the world. You will be my special treasure because the whole world belongs to me. Verse six, and you will be my kingdom of priests. You'll represent people to me and you'll represent me to people and you will be my holy nation. So he tells Moses, so go, that's my offer. Go tell them that. Go tell them that if they'll keep the law, then they'll be my special treasure. You'll always be my special people. You'll be my priest. Go tell them, so this is the message you must give to the people of Israel. Verse seven. So Moses returned from the mountain. He called together all the elders of the people and he told them everything the Lord commanded him. And the people all responded together, yeah, we're, yeah, we will we'll do everything the Lord has commanded. So Moses brought the people's answer back to the Lord. He's negotiating, right? He's going back and forth. And he goes, yeah, we're, we're in. Yeah, we'll do it. So you give us the laws and we'll keep them and we will be your holy priests and we will be your special holy nation and we'll reflect you to the world around us with our holiness because we're gonna keep all these laws. So that was the deal. Um, how'd it go? Did, did, did they keep their end of the deal? This is important. Did God keep his end of the deal? Yes. Yeah, that's why the Bible tells us that even when we're unfaithful, God is always faithful because that's just who he is. So Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is mostly, this is why we always bog down when we're reading the Bible in a year, right? Because that's mostly just, unpack, this is unpacking the law. This is God saying, this is what you're, this is the law. This is what I'm asking you to do. And then honestly, after that, most of the rest of the Old Testament is about Israel failing to keep up their end of it and about God being faithful to them even when they were completely unfaithful to him. And so you read it and you're thinking, like, surely God's just gonna give up on them, right? I mean, they just, they just won't keep up their side of the covenant. But instead, look at this surprising thing. Jeremiah 31, 31. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I'm just gonna make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And this covenant won't be like the last one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, even though I love them as a husband loves his wife. But this new covenant I will make with the people of Israel, and after those days, says the Lord, I will put my instructions deep within them and I'll write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they just the same deal for him, right? And they will be my people, and they won't need to teach their neighbors or tell their neighbors, you should know the Lord for everybody, from the least to the greatest will already know me, says the Lord, and here's a good one. I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. So they made this deal with God, and they just, they didn't keep it, and so, God's forgiving that, and now he's just, he's just making a new deal. And it's not that the old law or the old covenant is bad. In fact, God kept his part. The problem is that people didn't keep their side of it. So instead of just burning them down, right, instead of suing them for breach of contract, 
God's going to offer them a new deal. And in this new covenant, it's not going to be just about remembering and keeping all these laws. It's not just going to be about specific behaviors. It's going to be a lot deeper than that. So the old law, the old covenant was about Israel, right? This chosen nation of people made in God's image. And they're supposed to be reflecting his goodness and his character and his holiness to the world by their behaviors, right? And that's how, the, that's how the Ammonites and the Philistines and all those people were supposed to see God. So like, yeah, don't, don't kill each other. How about that? Don't sleep with each other's wives. Don't steal each other's stuff. Just worship God. Do that. Do that. Just do that. And just do all that stuff. And when you fail, then just do an animal sacrifice and try harder next time, right? And so that's like the old covenant. And just you get right with God by changing your behaviors, this new covenant isn't about getting right with God by changing your behaviors. It's about changing your heart. It's like a whole nother level. In Galatians 3.24, Paul said, the law is like our guardian until Christ came. So it, it protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. So the law was like our, um, like our babysitter. Right? It was just a bunch of rules that kept us out of trouble. So really, even if you're like a terrible person on the inside, just don't steal, okay? Don't kill, don't covet, don't commit adultery, and honor God with your worship. And even if you're terrible, broken on the inside, at least you'll, you'll look holy to the people around you. And maybe your neighbors that don't know God will see his goodness and his holiness and his like differentness in you, and they'll be drawn to God through that. So that, that was the purpose of the law, right? To, to, for people to see the goodness and the holiness of God. And to do that, the plan was to make God's people um, behaved, right? And whether, whether they wanted to or not. And the weird, it's kind of a funny thing, it, it didn't really change God's people. Because deep down, they were still sinful, prideful, hateful, selfish people in their hearts. And that's why they kept breaking the law. I mean, the experiment kind of proved that fixing humanity on the outside by changing their behaviors really didn't fix what was broken inside. Because what was, they had broken hearts. And we, you know, that term, broken hearts, that's funny, right? Or heart, it's funny um, to think of what they meant in the Old Testament when they said the word heart. Um, I don't know if we have any cardiologists in the room. What does your heart do? What? It, are you a cardiologist? Okay, I said a cardiologist. I was very specific. Okay. Yeah, your heart, thanks Jane. Your, your heart pumps blood. Now, we know that, right? We've seen, the, we've seen x-rays and MRIs. We know what a CT scan proves to us. We know what your heart does. It pumps blood. But 4,000 years ago, in the desert of the Near East. Did they know that? Did they know that? Did they, did they literally know what the heart looked like and what it did and what it was? Did they literally know what the brain looks like or what its function is? They, they didn't. They thought of the heart as like, like the center of your being, right? Your heart, that's the initiator 
of love and thought and understanding and motivation and your character. It's like your, your heart, man, that's, that's who you are, right? That's the essence of you, right? That's the core of you. And we still have some expressions left over from that, right? So like we'll say, I believe that in my, <laughs> but you don't really believe it in your heart, right? We, we know that's like a expression, right? Oh, I just love him with all my brain synapses, right? We know, that's not, but we say that, but literally we don't think that's what your, we know what your heart really does, but these people, when Jesus was teaching them, they literally really thought that your heart was every man, it was your mind and your character and your, your self and your, like your soul. So Jesus is saying he didn't come to change the laws and he didn't even come to change our behaviors. He came to change our hearts. He came to change who we are in our mind and in our soul, in our, our true self. He's not, he's not abolishing the law. You still shouldn't steal or kill or covet, but not because the law says so, but because your heart says so. God says in this new covenant, I'm gonna write my instructions. You're gonna know me. You're gonna know what pleases and honors me in, in, in your heart. In fact, look, at this is Ezekiel 36, 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you and I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart and I'll put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. So this new covenant isn't about a change of behavior. It's about a, it's about a change of heart. It's not about doing what God wants. It's about wanting what God wants with our whole heart and with our whole self, with our soul and our mind and our essence. So here's Jesus, he's, he's, he's preaching and he's in complete authority and he's, he's fixing to go through this like list of laws, right? And you've heard this before and he's not gonna abolish them. He's not gonna abolish the laws. He's gonna get to the heart of them. And so for each one of these laws, he says, you've heard the law says this, right? But I say, where's your heart? Right? He's just getting nine times he's fixing to do this. We're just gonna do one today. He says, you've heard the law say, right? You've heard it said that thou shalt not murder. It's like, yeah, that's a good one. Don't, yeah, that's, that's a good one. But I say, don't even be angry in your heart. Don't, just not, not just don't kill somebody. Don't, don't be that way. Be different than that. Don't be that way in your heart. Don't even call somebody names, he says. He says, don't even take communion. Don't even try to live out your faith if you have this animosity, right? If you have this anger in your heart. This is, this is a lot more than just not going through with the murder plan, right? The, it, the behaviors aren't the problem. They're, they're symptoms of the problem. The problem is a broken heart. You don't, you don't just need to have your behavior changed. You need to have your heart changed. You see the difference in those two different covenants. So here's, here's, an old, here's an old covenant guy. He's walking down the street. He's on the way to have an affair with a married woman, right? And they've got plans. Um, they're gonna do this thing at the hotel. After that, they're gonna go to her house. They're gonna kill her husband. They're gonna take all their money. They're gonna go on the road, rob a couple of banks, save up some money. They're gonna move to France, 
And while they're in France, they're going to go around the country burning down all the orphanages. Okay? That's the plan. And so now he's on the way over there. He's walking. He's an old covenant dude. He's got all the robes, the big beard, and all that stuff. He's walking along. He steps off the curb wrong, twists his ankle. Now he's got to go to the emergency room. Now he's in the hospital for a couple of days. While he's in the hospital, she makes up with her husband. Ruins the whole plan. Right? The old covenant guy would say, oh, well, at least I didn't sin. Right? So I'm, I'm still good with God. But Jesus would say, you know, you might look good, but the problem still exists, right? We've got to get to the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is your heart. You get it? I'll tell you another one. It's about my sister. I have a brother and a sister. I'm the good one. And so when my sister was like two or three years old, um, she thought the word blood was a nasty word. And so she would get behind the couch and she would say, blood, blood, blood. <laughs> blood, blood, blood. And somebody might say to her, oh, well, you know, it could be worse. At least she's not saying a real cuss word, right? But I think Jesus would say, that's, that's not really better because just like any other, that's reflecting the bigger issue, right? That's the cause of the sin. It's a broken heart. It's still sin. She just, she just wasn't very good at it. <laughs> so Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, right? The law's not the problem. Our hearts are the problem. In fact, Jesus said, we don't need to abolish the law. In fact, I'll simplify it for you. Remember this? It's in Matthew 22. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, hey, we got 613 laws, man. Which one's the most important? Rank them for us, top to bottom. And Jesus says, I'll tell you the law, love. Verse 37, this is Matthew 22, 37. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and your mind. This is the first, see, all your, like your whole self, your whole heart, right? Your heart, soul, and your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second one's equally important. Love your neighbor and yourself. Look what he says. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So the whole law is summed up here. Love God, love people. It doesn't need to be abolished. The law's not the problem. The problem is our hearts. Our, our hearts are broken. And that's why we need a new covenant. And that's why we need a new heart. And that's why he says in Matthew 5, 20, he's telling them all this. Look what he says. I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you'll never even enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees, they knew the law. And they kept the law. These were like the best rule keepers ever. They even made up some laws on their own just to intentionally make it harder to keep the law. But Jesus is saying, you know what? That thing you're doing, keeping the law for everybody to see, that might have, that might have been enough in the desert. But that righteousness is not going to cut it in the kingdom of God. Because God's kingdom is more than your behaviors. It's about your heart. The Pharisees' righteousness was in their power, right? And it, honestly, it was for their glory. And it was about their performance and how many laws they could keep. And, and it did a great job of making people praise them. But Jesus said, when your heart is right, right, when you're really salt, when you're really light, everyone will praise your heavenly Father. That's, that's the whole point of being salt and light. We're, we're supposed to stick out we're supposed to be visible. 
We're supposed to bring light into the darkness like a city on a hill. People are supposed to see our salt and our light and be drawn to the Father through it. And if that's not happening in your life, if you find that you can't keep those 613 laws or those two laws, if you're struggling with sin, it's like, man, I know I shouldn't, you know, this guilt, I shouldn't be doing this. Like the harder I try to stop, the more I do it. I know I'm supposed to be doing this good stuff, but I just don't want to. And I know I'm supposed to forgive people and love people, but I hate them. And I know I'm supposed to be living different and I just can't. The secret is not trying harder. And the secret's not working harder. And the secret's not doing better or having your behavior change. The secret is coming to the one that can change your heart and just saying, Jesus, I need you. I mean, I want to be salt and light, but this outside-in change isn't working for me. Keeping the rules isn't working for me. And, you know, religion isn't, isn't working for me. Changing, changing my behavior isn't working. So will you change my heart? And I want to tell you, if you've never had this initial heart procedure, you know, if you've never, if you've never asked Jesus to forgive you and change you and give you a new heart, then you trying to be good, if I can just say this, you're wasting your time. You're, you're wasting your time. So if you're, if you're online, you should, you should put something in the chat box and let us know you're ready to have your heart transformed. Put it in the comment section or call the church. If you're in this room right now, man, you should, you should not listen to anything else I say. You should go back there. I think Dwight and Pat are back there. They would love to get with you and just not shake the sin out of you, right? Not tell you what you're doing wrong and how you need to do better, but instead just pray with you and ask Jesus to give you what you really need. You need a new heart. And if you're a Christian now, but you're still struggling with sin and, you're, and you're, you're wanting to be salt and light, but you just feel like you're not. Like if you feel like you're indistinguishable from the darkness of this world, then look, there's no condemnation for you. But if you're feeling convicted about needing to make a change, you shouldn't feel bad about that. You should feel good about that. You shouldn't feel ashamed or guilty about that. You should be excited, this is great. Because what that is, that feeling that I wish I was doing better, that maybe I should stop this, maybe I should start that, maybe I'm not as salty and light as I ought to be, that's the Holy Spirit inside of you. That is Jesus in your heart, continuing his work on your heart. So the solution to that, again, is not trying harder, okay? It's not bowing up. Remember that expression? Bow up. It's not about bowing up. It's not about trying harder. It's not about running faster or doing more or being better. It's about turning to the one who can actually do something with the real problem and can make these corrections in your heart. And so, man, if you struggle with any kind of sin or failure or shame, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't gotta stand up and say what it is, although that would be fun. You don't have to do that. He knows your heart, right? So we should just pray that he will finish the work that he began in your heart when you became a Christian. So I don't know. Let's, it's a weird thing, huh? Let's, let's think about all the stuff we do wrong. Let's think about this problem that we have, this thing that we can't overcome, and just, let's just get that in our head. And instead of us gritting our teeth and trying to fix it, 
Let's ask Jesus to go to the source and fix us from the inside out. Can we do that? Let's, let's think of how messed up we are and let's take it to him. Let's pray. Jesus, man, thank you for doing for us what the law could not do. Even if we were good, even if we kept the rules, even if we did stuff well, we were, we were never, ever gonna really be the light of the world. We were never really gonna represent God as people made in his image. We were never gonna do that. And so thank you, because you came to fix what was broken, our heart, not to change the law, not to, not to take away from the prophets. You came to fix our hearts. So this is just us. We're, we're confessing our sin to you and saying we are messed up, man. We're broken and sometimes the harder we try, the worse we do, and we say we're never going back to that website, we're never gonna say those words, we're never gonna do those things, or we're gonna start doing this more or start doing this better, and we always say it, and we always fail, and so we just, this is just us saying we need your help. Will you please transform us from the inside out? Will you please finish the good work that you began in us? and make us more and more like you. And when you take away this weird shame and fear that we have, that's not from you. That's not from you. When we fail, that's, man, that's just a time for us to turn to you and ask you to finish what you began in us. So will you please just do that? Will you just finish the work that you started? Thank you for working in us and working on us and working through us. And thank you for loving us and bringing us a new covenant. In your name, amen.